great to be here with you today. And uh, so thankful to be continuing on in our journey through Exodus. Before I get started, just want to make one uh, brief announcement. Uh, Cole, who read our scripture a little while ago, is with us today with his new fiance, Bailey. They were engaged last week. So, uh, In case you didn't know that, you can congratulate them, and uh, I just want to say, Bailey, nothing's done until you say I do, so you have plenty of time. Just consider your options going forward. That's, that's all I want to say. Um, no, I, I love Cole a lot. He's a very special person to me, and uh, Bailey's becoming special to us as well. So thankful, thankful to have them with us today and to have this, this exciting news. Um, let me, let me open in prayer. Bless your great name, O God, our Father. And as you have revealed yourself to your people throughout history, would you manifest yourself today to our hearts? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you can see on the PowerPoint, we're talking about the Ten Commandments who in here gets really excited when you get to talk about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, Jonathan does. Yeah, well, a few of you, a few of you sincerely do, I guess. Okay. Most people don't. Um, most people, I think, when they hear the Ten Commandments, they think something like, well, is there a political debate about where to post them? Or is this just boring? Maybe some people think, well, that's hard. We have to do some things that we don't really want to do. Maybe some of it sounds kind of harsh, and we don't really like those things. That's the old Bible, as people have said before. Um, most people today in our churches have not spent a lot of time in the Ten Commandments. In fact, okay, flash survey here. Okay, be honest. Raise your hand if you can just name off the top of your head all the Ten Commandments. We have You've been preaching for 60 years. You don't count. Okay. Uh, no, we got. It's not bragging. It's okay. I, we just want to know. Several, several people in here. That's good. Um, I am uh, thankful that we have some, but most, most of us can't, and uh, that's okay. Uh, I hope that by the time we're done with the next two weeks, you will want to know them, and. Uh, you will want to be able to recite them because you will have seen that they are super, super significant, uh, not uh, just for uh, times past, but for us today, and not just for society at large, which these, these commands have had implications for all of Western civilization, but beyond that, they, they still matter for the church today. Most people today, when they think of the Ten Commandments, they think of something not that great, and most of us don't think of grace. What I want to say to you today is that the Ten Commandments are grace. And that's the way they were always understood historically. Now remember where we are in the story, because uh, if you lose sight of the story, you lose sight of the point. And Charles reminded us last week of the kind of three big movements in the book of Exodus. You first get deliverance from bondage, deliverance from slavery. Then you get to this next place at Sinai, where you get the giving of the law. That's the next, if you want to use the, the theological term, it's the next salvific movement. The next movement of salvation in Exodus 
comes at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. And then next, what we get to after we get done with this, is going to be the tabernacle, and that gets us to worship. You get to God's deli- from God's deliverance to God's law to God's worship, all in the book of Exodus. And this is, it covers a lot of, of life with God that we're, we're given here. This is exciting stuff, and it's very, very important. This is a central movement, not only in the book of Exodus, but the entire Pentateuch, those first five books of Moses. This is extremely important material. It's arranged so that we will realize that. I want to show you what what they thought of the law, what the, what the Israelites, what the people of God thought about the law. I mean, we already read this today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, now the Ten Commandments can be thought of as like the, the central summary of the broader law. These are the heart of things that get us into everything else. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Wow. Is that what the Ten Commandments do for you? Rejoicing our hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Towards the end of the Psalter, we get these words in the psalm. God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for the law of God. That's what the scriptures teach us. This is not, we got the good stuff, like salvation came, that was so great. And then get out there in the wilderness, get to Sinai, and God's like, now i got to give you the bad news, guys. <laughs> now there's the law. <laughs> get ready, you got to deal with it. This is not what's happening. This is God gifting his people. People need to know how to live. Communities need to know how to function. If you imagine what it was like for these people who lived in a world where people practiced divination and, and tried to figure out what the gods were saying because they were silent, tried to read the stars, tried to you know, cut open birds and things and, and, and look at their entrails and say, well, this is what God says. That's the kind of things that people did back then. And our God, the God, comes to his people and says, I will speak to you directly and I will teach you how to live. He has dealt thus with no other nation, the Israelite says. Praise the Lord. This is the law that we're given. And learning from it becomes our great gift. Now, this meeting at Sinai is actually the literary climax of the entire Pentateuch. Again, the first five books of Moses. Uh, It's arranged in such a way where if you follow the text carefully, you'll see this. And... uh, uh, this is, uh, I'm borrowing from a book you'll see cited there at the bottom. I feel like I should give credit to, to Carmen Imes, who's, who's written a, a wonderful book, Bearing God's Name. So, so we're going to stay at Sinai for 57 chapters. It's going to be next year, probably, when we come back to the Old Testament, that we'll finish up being at Sinai. 57 chapters. And it's arranged in such a way where uh, it, the author is highlighting... This is the center, and if you pay careful attention, you see six campsites before Sinai. Six camps are marked out after Sinai, and they all have this little phrase with them, and they set out. The desert is mentioned seven times before Sinai, seven times after Sinai. Manna and quail come, water from a rock comes twice, 
before Sinai and after Sinai. And that's just part of the evidence that uh, Carmen Imes presents for seeing this as at the center of, of the Pentateuch. It's arranged so that we stop and we say, oh, okay, they've literally come up the mountain, literarily speaking. They've gone up to the top, and now they start to descend. This is at the center of the, the Pentateuch, the center of the, those five books. And we're supposed to stop and say, okay, this is important. And what are we going to learn from this? So let's pick up here. If you have your Exodus book, otherwise known as the Bible, but it extended <laughs> our, our, our Exodus book or the Bible. You can use either one. And we'll start lead, reading in verse 2. God speaks to the people. It's not exactly clear if they hear God speaking in an articulate way or if Moses is speaking on behalf of God here. But that doesn't really matter. One way or the other, they know God is speaking to them. Remember the mountain shaking. There's thunder and lightning. There's smoke. There's a, there's a huge uproar or, or commotion around this mountain highlighting the power and majesty of God that Charles talked to us about last week and then he speaks and here's what he says to start out I am the Lord your God now remember how significant it is that these people are given the name of the Lord it's not just so they can win Bible trivia if they ever play it they're given the name of the Lord because God is making himself, his character, his actions known to them. They are to know him personally and relate to him personally. And here, as he's led them out, Moses has said, I'm coming to you on behalf of the Lord. They, he leads them out to the mountain. And now it's as if God turns around and looks at them and says, I am the Lord. You can know me. And I have delivered you so that you can know me. I am Yahweh, your God. And I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We're so used to that that we don't necessarily stop with it to, to think about how significant it is that he's saying this and that this has happened. But let me say to you that we cannot really appreciate the Ten Commandments if we don't start with this little verse right here. I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the land of slavery, I delivered you. And this is the order of salvation in the Bible. We always start with God as the Savior before we take God as the commander. God is first the one who delivers. And if we, if we don't understand that, if we don't grasp that, we will, we will get the whole order out of line and our hearts will be out of alignment. And we're back. With the PowerPoint. Our deliverance comes first. And our deliverance does not depend on our obedience. You understand that? God delivers before they're obedient. But their obedience does depend on his deliverance. Do you know that God didn't show up to Moses in the burning bush and give him the Ten Commandments? He didn't show up and, and, and give him tablets of stone and say, now take these to Egypt with you and go out there and meet, meet the people and tell them that if they will do these things and I'll evaluate them and if they will do them all right to a certain percentage of success, 
then I will come and I'll deliver them from slavery. There's nothing like that. Not one hint of it in the, in the original, in the early chapters of Exodus. What you have is God coming and saying, I have heard your cry for deliverance. And I'm coming to save you. And it's from that salvation that obedience flows. You see, the, the law is a great gift of God. But apart from that context, it will always be misunderstood. It will turn into something like mere ethics. And that's not what we have in Christ. What we have is a relationship with a personal God who wants to save us and deliver us into a life. And if it's mere ethics, it will likely devolve into legalism and pride. Oh, look, I've done a good job with these laws I'm supposed to keep. But that's never been what God's been trying to do. God's been trying to establish a relationship with himself. And these laws then show us how to live out of that relationship. This is why the emphasis falls on God's grace and God's mercy first. And then, as we understand this God who loves us and delivers us, we understand his call into obedience and we live further and further into that. Outside of that relationship, the law will likely become a burden to us. Even as a good thing, it will it'll still be good. It will still restrain sin. It will still expose sin. You know, it's good to have laws in general, even if people don't appreciate them. But it will become an external thing to us, the thing we're just doing because we think we have to do it or this is the way we make the world work okay. You see, here, here's the problem, and, and this, is a, this is a very common problem in the Christian faith. And this is what I grew up with, okay? We put a question mark over God's love, and we put a period behind his commandments. And you know what happens in that kind of world? What happens is you don't really keep the commandments. I mean, you keep some of them. What you end up doing is you, you highlight the ones you think you are good at. <laughs> or your group's good at, and you elevate those, and you measure yourself by that. You see, it's only when you have put an exclamation point behind God's love that you say, I want to keep the commandments from a different place. And the commandments then rejoice your heart because this God who loves you and wants to deliver you, who has made that emphatically clear, has called you into this kind of obedience. Then we see and appreciate the goodness and we, we see all, all of our obedience to commands is tied to this relationship with God. Our, if you want to say our theology is always tied with our morality. They're never separated from each other. All right, with that foundation in place, and by the way, we're not going through all ten commandments today. We're just looking at the first ones here. Look at, look at verse 3. These, these, and there are different ways to number the ten commandments. You can get as many as 13 out of them, if you number them a certain way, we're just going, we're staying with 10. Um, and uh, you can kind of lump some together. Different traditions have separated them out different ways. But uh, uh, it doesn't really matter how we number them. We're just going through the text. So this, this first one here, you can't get past this being number one, whatever you do. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're very related, these early ones. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. And everything hangs on this. It gets us right to the heart of things. 
Because we are a people who are made for God. And God has an exclusive and an extensive claim over our lives. It is exclusive because he has bound himself to us in a covenant relationship. By the way, that's what's happening here at Sinai. There's a covenant being made. It's a recognizable form of, of ancient covenant making that's going on where you have a superior party coming and setting out an agreement before them, and they're agreeing to it. That's why they said in, in the previous chapter, all that, all that you've spoken will do. They're agreeing to the terms of the covenant. And, and this is an amazing thing. I'm not aware of any other God in, in, in pagan history, you know, God, quotation marks, who makes a covenant with people. This is the incredible thing about the God, the God of Israel and the God of the whole world, is that he is a covenant-making God. That means he wants to bind himself to his people. But when he does that, it becomes an exclusive relationship. That's why in a few verses you'll read where he says, I am a jealous God. And we read that and we struggle with it. Sometimes. We say, well, that, that sounds petty to me. No, jealousy just means a consuming passion for what you love. Now, when it's misdirected, it's a petty thing and a bad thing. If I have a consuming passion for something that's yours, right, that's envy, and that's a very bad thing. But if I have a consuming passion for what is rightfully mine, something I love, that's a good thing. That's why in, in Scripture, God is repeatedly pictured as a wounded lover for his people. As a husband whose wife repeatedly cheats on him. That's how God is pictured over and over and over throughout the Bible. And he is rightfully a jealous God. Because jealousy is a function of his love. The exclusivity. People in our, in our world today say it's a, it's a bad thing, it's a harsh thing to ever be exclusive. And they don't realize that exclusivity is a function of covenant love. That's why marriages are exclusive. You know, one of the worst things you could ever do is if, if you find out about a, a spouse cheating. Somebody tells you, oh, your, your husband, your wife, they cheated on you. you say, so? You know what that would indicate? It would indicate something's died in you. But there's no, there's no love, that should, a rightful love that should be there is not there. That kind of indifference is an absence of what... It, should always characterize people who love each other and who bound themselves to each other in a covenant. The reason worship is exclusive to God is because he loves us so much. I mean, imagine in, in the Israelite world, everybody was what you call syncretist. And this is what the really pious people were. They, meant, they, they joined their gods together. Right? And they thought that's the way to be really holy because they didn't have the kind of revelation that we have. So what they would do is if they, if they met a foreign God, they'd say, well, come on in. We'll make room for you. We'll merge it all together. We'll be one who worships this God and that God and the other God. Right? And that's the way to be really religious. Imagine those people coming to you in that world and saying, hey, come worship our gods with us. And you say, no, I can't. Well, that seems rude. And it is rude if you, if you think, well, I'm just better than you. <laughs> I'm not going to go worship with you. But if you think, if your explanation is, no, my God loves me too much for that. I don't do that because the God of heaven has loved me so much and he is, 
he has bound himself to me with an oath and tied himself to me forever. I'm not going to go worship other gods. This is what's happened for us. It's an exclusive claim that God makes on us in a covenant like a marriage. There's a lot more we could say about that, but I need to move on. Worship's not just exclusive. I said it's, it's extensive. That means it claims all of us. You shall have no other God before me or besides me. See, this is, this is why we're talking about worship and not friendship. We've encountered people before who, who are like, well, I only have one friend. And they, they kind of try to eliminate other friends. Uh, uh, well, that doesn't seem right when you're dealing with friendship, right? Like, a good friend will want you to be friends with other people. But when you're talking about worship, claiming that kind of allegiance, you see, this is an extensive claim. All of your life. That's why then when we, when we get to idolatry in the New Testament and Christian history, it gets extended beyond just bowing down to idols. It becomes a matter of what's in your heart, what's, what's really on the throne of your heart. There's a song that's in the old uh, Faith and Praise books. I think it's an old hymn. And uh, the writer says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er the idol be, help me tear it from your throne and worship only thee. See, that is what we're after, ultimately, is that anything in our life that might be a competitor with God, competitor with God we want it torn down. That means money. That means our career. God comes before it. God comes before our spouses. God comes before our children. God comes before our politics. God, help us to know that he comes before our politics in this day and age. Whatever the idol be, help us tear it from your throne and worship only thee. That's the first commandment. Sometimes we wonder why we're not experiencing the benefits of the Christian life, why we're not growing like we want to grow. And I wonder with some of us is that we've never even kept the first commandment. To say, I will have no God who competes with you. The God who has revealed himself to me and has made a covenant with me. That's the first command. And this command then informs everything else. This is a little bit redundant, but I want to say it very clearly. Our obedience takes on a different flavor when it's done in light of our relationship with this God. All obedience flows from this relationship. All command-keeping flows from this relationship. And it's just a different kind of thing. You know, okay, let me illustrate it to you this way. If I weren't married, I would probably occasionally still clean my house. Probably. I would think, you know, it needs to be done. But when Olivia goes on a long trip and uh, she and the girls have been gone for a while, before they come home, I usually start, try to start cleaning the house up. And I do it, you know, I just, I just work myself down. 
Probably more than I should. No, I'm exaggerating. But uh, uh, I do clean, and I clean uh, because I know they're coming home. And I want them to come home to a house that they are happy to enter and that feels welcoming to them, right? You see, now, now my, my actions there have taken on an entirely different nuance. There's an entirely different feel to them. I can clean the house either way. But what's happening as I'm cleaning the house is something totally different, right? Because of a relationship. This is what's meant to happen with us in all of our obedience, right? And we've got too many Christians who go around trying to be nice because they've learned that being nice is, is a good thing. Yeah, being nice is a good thing. Be kind because you have experienced the kindness of God. And you know he is watching you and he is with you. And listen to this. He is pleased with you. That's what the scriptures teach. If we had time, we could look at them. God is pleased with sinful people like us. When we take action to serve him, it pleases him. And we have to find this balance. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said that, that God is easily pleased, but he's never satisfied. But you see, if you grow up like I did in a legalistic context, you're likely to feel like he's never satisfied and he's never pleased. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is pleased with us. And we walk through the world aware that when we seek to do his will, we are pleasing with the heart of God. This is what happens when we keep the first commandment. And we recognize all of life flows from having no other God. The second commandment is like it. Look at this. We're not going to spend a long time on this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any uh, or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or, or that is on the earth beneath, that is in the water, under the earth. No images. This is what ancient worship was for pagans. They made images, right? God said you won't make any images. First of all, you won't worship anyone else. So you won't make any of those images. Second of all, you won't even make any images of me. Remember what's going to happen later in the book of Exodus? When they, they get upset, Moses is gone, and they decide to worship uh, falsely, they make a golden calf, and Aaron says, it's a calf to the Lord, or something along those lines. I, maybe I'll be exact quote. It wasn't okay, right? And the text doesn't tell us why exactly making images for the Lord is forbidden, but I don't think we're wrong to speculate, as many people had have throughout history, that that uh, simply speaking, God's too great. <laughs> He's too great to be represented by anything we can make. So he doesn't let us get confused by making images. And imagine how misled we would have been if he had said, well, you can make, you can make something as long as it's a really, really lovely animal or if it's a tree, or whatever. I mean, imagine how over time that would have dulled our senses to the God who just speaks and says, I'm present everywhere. He's protecting us from that. And, and he's protecting us from all the foolishness that human beings get into when their hearts are hard to God. And it's still all over the world today. And you're not supposed to say it because we live in a world with pluralism and you're supposed to say everything's okay, but it's not. He's protecting us from stuff like this. 
That's the, the goddess Ganesha, the Hindu goddess. In fact, that may be the one that, that Shivraj led worship for. I can't remember for sure. A lot of you know Shivraj. Uh, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and brought him out of his uh, paganism. Um, he was the leading, wor- leading worship, uh, he was the worship leader for, for uh, his people. And see, stuff like this, this just degrades. This degrades the God of heaven. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the Hindu people do not need us to come along and say, well, your way's okay and our way's okay. With graciousness and kindness, they need us to say, God has revealed himself, and you can be saved from this kind of nonsense. And you can know the true and the living God. And that's what, that's what the, the people like Shivraj or Sastri, who was here recently, that's exactly what they will tell you their people need. Be brought out of this darkness and into the light. Don't make any images. You degrade the beautiful, glorious God of heaven. Okay, I want to move down. There's more we could say about this part of the text, but I want to move on and finish up with the, the last uh, one we'll look at today. If you want to call it the third command, depending on how you number them. Verse, verse 7, okay? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A lot of times we think, well, this means you shouldn't say God as a cuss word. And I'm not recommending that, okay? In fact, I, I'll tell you about myself. I, I grew up, and, and we were very, very carefully taught not to say bad words. In fact, we were not allowed even to say, but. We spelled B-U-T-T. Or said some other word for it. Right? And I learned that you should not say euphemisms. Right? You familiar with euphemisms? A euphemism is what you substitute for the word. So, so gosh. We didn't say gosh or golly. Gah, as they would say. But here's what, now here's what happened with me, okay? As a, a really faithful, careful legalist that I was. Eventually, when I was a teenager, I realized, wait a second. There are more G words I've been using. I said, goodness, or my goodness, or goodness gracious. I eliminated all of them. I was trying not to say anything close to the name of God. I eventually landed on, oh, me, as my exclamation. That's truly, that's what I did for a long time. That's what I would say, oh, me. I couldn't trace that back to any cuss word. You know, there's nothing, nothing I could trace it back to. Um, I think I was extreme, okay? But actually, you see, this is where legalism gets us. Um, we miss the point. And there's a point here that we really need to grasp. It's central to what, what's being said here. It may even strike you as strange and kind of random. This is what we end up thinking the Ten Commandments are boring and, and pointless uh, for reasons like this. If, if you're reading this and you think, yeah, okay, and then he says, don't say God's name. Okay, you need to be careful with that. No, 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 no. He's talking about recognizing God as God, honoring God as God, and living with God as God. And this bearing God's name is not just something speaking, okay? The same, same terminology is used later in the book of Exodus when it's talking about priests who go into the temple or to the, it would be the tabernacle at that point, and they bear 
the names of the sons of Israel. They would have on their garments, they would have these stones that had the names of the sons of Israel written on them. And they bore, the, they bore those names before the Lord when they went into the tabernacle, right? And the priest was a representative. The priest was a representative of the, the Lord to the people and of the people to the Lord. But as Charles talked about last week, Exodus 19 says that you're all a kingdom of priests. So the priests were representative of the larger role of all the people. We were all meant to bear the name of the Lord. When Avery was first learning to write, um, and she learned her letter was A. And one day we found Sidney's Bible with a large A markered into it. <laughs> and she said she was marking it something like so people would know and bad guys would stay away or something like that. Um, and then later we found the side of our Ford Expedition. I don't know what instrument was used, but there was a large A scraped into the side of our vehicle. <laughs> she had marked our vehicle with her letter. Now, you see, we know, we know what marking things is, is for. It's a way of kind of claiming them, putting ourselves on them, branding things, right? Cows are branded or, or were at one point. I think they still are. Uh, um, I want to say to you that what this text is getting at is that God has branded his people with his name. In fact, when the priests would go into the tabernacle, they would wear something, a little golden amulet on the front of their, their head. It said, uh, holy to the Lord, meaning I belong to the Lord. And this whole people belongs to the Lord. And you see, this is the, the huge thing that's happened in the book of Exodus. God has revealed his name to his people. He's given it to them. And he said, you guys... Bear my name now on the earth. Be my representatives before all the people of the world. Like the priest bears my name to you and bears your name before me, you bear my name out before all the earth. This is the calling of God's people. And what he's saying is don't take that in vain. Don't live that out in a way that's futile. Don't live in a way that disrespects this. The entire first, if you want to call them the first three commands that we've looked at here, talk about honoring God as God, worshiping only God, and then living well with this God's name, representing him well in the world. That's what we're talking about, carrying the name of God. Do you understand that you are one who carries the reputation of God with you? The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 52 when he's talking about the Jewish people doing a lot of bad stuff. And he says, the name of God is blasphemed, it's slandered among the nations because of you. See, they had been, been tasked with carrying God's name. And when people saw them carrying it, in the wrong way, that reflected on God. Can you, can you imagine the, the thing that God has done with us? The dignity that he's given to us? He said, I'm, I'm going to attach my reputation to the way you guys live. This is why it's a tragedy 
when the church is flippant and casual about division. Because people see the name of God attached to the church. Why it's a tragedy when Christians, many times Christian leaders, are known to, to, to live in perverse sin. But we don't have to talk about Christian leaders. We can just talk about what we're doing on a daily basis. Do you understand that you carry the name of God with you? And people see you, and it reflects on God because he's given us his name to bear. Here's the, here's the good news, okay? We can live in a way that truly, truly honors that name. I love this passage, and we're going to close up here. Paul says, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve, every resolve you have for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you see what he's saying? As, as you seek to do good, as faith produces devotion and work in you by the power of God, the name of the Lord... Lord Jesus is glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that by the way we live, Jesus can be glorified? By the way you speak and act in the world, this great Jesus whom we say we love, this magnificent Jesus that if, if we've seen him at all, we've come to adore him, or else you've just not seen him. This great Jesus in the world will be glorified by his people living in his ways. That's according to the grace of our God. The risk he has taken is to put his name on us, and we can defile or we can magnify that name. And that's the question I'll leave with you today. Will the name of God be blasphemed because of you? Or will the name of the Lord be magnified because of you? Let us not bear the name of the Lord our God in vain. Praise team, would you guys come on up? And um, as you're coming, I'm going to go, go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being your name bearers in the world. And please teach us to magnify your name with our lives. Fulfill our desires to do good. Let your power work in us so that people see how glorious you are. And we will give you thanks for it. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.